Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Simon Hill. Simon is a physiotherapist and nutritionist and host of the Plant Proof Podcast. He is also the author of the new book, The Proof is in the Plants, How Science Shows a Plant-Based Diet Could Save Your Life and the Planet. Now, the book leverages scientific research to show how adopting a plant-based diet reduces the prevalence of common diseases like coronary heart disease, cancer, diabetes, and dementia. It outlines how all of our required macronutrients, carbs, fats, and proteins, as well as vitamins, minerals, and polyphenols are bioavailable in plants. In a world awash with the phrase, studies say, Simon is known for his rigorous commitment to stringent scientific research. And in our discussion, we discuss the various levels of stringency from expert opinions at the bottom to large-scale meta-analyses at the top. We unpack the protein myth that leads humans to believe that they get their protein directly from eating animal protein. We delve deep into the hazards of a diet rich in saturated fat. We explore how excess LDL cholesterol has been tied to coronary artery disease. We discuss the bacteria in our gut, our microbiome, and the byproducts they create when fed fiber versus animal protein. We talk about the causes and impacts of intestinal permeability, or leaky gut. And we talk about the environmental impacts of industrial meat consumption, from methane emissions to water usage to deforestation. Now, diet and nutrition are such a complicated topic with a lot of mixed messages. Simon's clarity and lack of dogma is on display in our conversation and in his book. So I hope you find this discussion as clarifying and compelling as I did. So without further delay, I present to you, Simon Hill. Okay. 
Okay, off we go. Simon Hill. How are you? Good to be with you. Jeff, thank you for having me. It's yeah. a pleasure to be here and a fantastic location. I love yeah. it up here. I always get nervous because we are close to LA, but it seems like a million miles away. Mm. And you do lose internet for a moment mm. coming up these winding hills and winding roads. And then all of a sudden people are like, wait, I don't have any internet and I'm going to a place called Commune. <laughs> but <laughs> no, as you can see. I can tell you there's nothing to be scared of. <laughs> <laughs> well, the day is young. Um, <laughs> So, no, I do appreciate you you making the trek up and uh, just congratulations on your new book, uh, The Proof is in the Plants, for uh, those who have the pleasure of watching the video version of this. Here's this glorious work of art. Um, and, and truly, congratulations, because I just, it is very, very evident how much work went into it, just mm. given the stringency and the rigorous pursuit uh, real data and real science. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. It's uh, nice to hear that feedback. It was the writing process was probably all said and done around three, three and a half years of dedicated writing. But uh, for me, uh, the process of, I guess, fine tuning how I think about science is probably decades in the making and um you know it was largely influenced by my father and i learned from an early age to have a deep respect for science and how to use science uh, objectively to help us make better decisions in our life and so my hope is that in a world where nutrition can be very confusing and conflicting yeah. that putting some nuance on the table and and looking at this through a very objective lens gives people information that they can grab a hold of with confidence and you know it's not about trying to be perfect but just having good information so you can make better choices and shift your health in the right direction yeah and it's right on time uh, you know we're not going to excavate COVID too much on this particular episode because plenty of people have talked about that. But I, I do think that one of the byproducts um, of that is that people, that there is a renewed interest in science, mm -hmm. which is, I think, very profitable for a society. Uh, God knows I'm like a moonlighting microbiologist and I'm not alone in, in that regard. Uh, I've learned more about microbiology and biochemistry, et cetera, in the last year and a half than certainly I ever did in school. Um, on the other hand, the flip side of that is that there's a lot of dubious science and there's a lot of indignation around do your research, et cetera, but it's not very, uh, but but media literacy and scientific literacy is not something that's really taught. Mm -hmm. But you actually address that quite head on in the book. And it actually might be a decent place to start because mm -hmm. as people try to unwind all of the mixed messages and confusion around what to eat, um, there is so much conflicting science. There's so much cherry-picked science. So how do you actually pull the right thread through the right eye of the needle? Yeah, I think you summarized that perfectly. Uh, we can all go out if we want and just find evidence to support a, a, a sort of predefined belief, and that is cherry-picking. And uh, 
basically the definition of confirmation bias. Uh, but real science and and evidence based to me, what that means is understanding that not all science is equal, and being able to remove any pre-held beliefs and analyzing the totality of the evidence to then lead you to form a belief. Yeah. So the science is is leading that belief, not the other way around. And mm. you know, quite often what you see on social media is more of a reverse engineered science uh, to to fit some sort of pre-chosen ideology or or narrative. So for me, uh, it's about understanding firstly there are different types of science that tell us different things and uh, there is an evidence hierarchy that loosely we should all be aware of uh, that helps us understand how valid and reliable a piece of evidence is and and really uh, how much weight we should give that piece of evidence you know is that evidence worthy of of creating recommendations for humans mm -hmm. or is it more of a hypothesis generating level of science so uh usually when i try and describe this evidence hierarchy i get people to think about a pyramid and the top of that pyramid is like the most reliable evidence for creating uh, recommendations for humans to improve their health and the bottom the base of that pyramid is the weakest least reliable evidence it doesn't mean that it's not important science and it's not contributing to our overall understanding it just means that if we're looking at it in isolation we have to be careful uh, about extrapolating and 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 sort of uh, generalizing the the generalizing the the findings uh, from it so at the bottom we have uh, the you know expert opinion if if I just say something and I don't have any data to back it up, but it's just an observation from perhaps my own experience, that's actually uh, quite weak evidence. And down at the same level is also case studies. So anecdotes, N equals mm -hmm. one um, experience. These are interesting and hypothesis generating, but they're not... A controlled experiment so it's, it's very hard for us to uh, extrapolate from those studies reliably above that you have uh, mechanistic style research so these are all the studies that you hear uh, about in laboratories looking at uh, human cell tissues under the microscope uh, work that my dad does actually and then also animal studies looking at studies on rats uh, and, and mice and uh, these are again these are important there are there is a lot of science at this level that helps us explain mechanisms mm -hmm. and also does generate hypotheses right and <clears throat> and then you can go further and study this in humans but uh, we have to be very careful in uh, in thinking that everything that we see that happens in an animal model happens in a human model, right? Because there may be different metabolic pathways in an animal that don't that aren't reflective in a human. Yeah. So our physiology is different, yeah. uh, and also at this at this level of science, something that I often see is uh, in an animal study, an animal exposed to 
uh, something at a level that a human would never be exposed to right. on a sort of gram per kilogram of body mass basis yeah, or, or gram per pound of body mass basis, I should say, while I'm here in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so the, the main takeaway uh, there is that if you're seeing something online and there's a big claim being made and it's from an animal study, for me, it's just reason to be skeptical yeah. about that that claim being translated to human health. Now, granted, there might be some circumstances where there is no human evidence at all and all we have is animal evidence. And in that case, you might take a bit of a precautionary approach and say, hang on, you know, until we have some human data, we should just be careful here. Uh, but when there is human data, that's what we really should be interested in most. And if we're ignoring the human data, to sort of just choose an animal study that is often cherry picking to, yeah. as I said before, to, to sort of suit a pre-held belief. And how do the terms in vivo or in vitro relate to those studies? Because mm -hmm. as a layman and as representing the layman of the world, mm -hmm. as I delve into primary source data and looking at studies and trying to read that, that mm -hmm. data myself, there's obviously it's just replete with bio jargon and terminology mm -hmm. and so what how do those terms relate to kind of animals humans petri dishes etc yeah so well in vitro is more in your petri dish yeah and in vivo is more looking at uh what happens within the body um or in an animal as well so that's the main two differences so if you're studying uh cell cultures in a petri dish that's considered in vitro um and then moving, I guess, up the pyramid to continue on yeah. there, you have uh, epidemiology, so observational science. There is various different types of observational research. These are studies looking at real humans out in the wild populations. And you can look uh, retrospectively. Right. You can look cross-sectionally just at, at, at a group of people maybe that come into a, a clinic today or you can look at people prospectively uh, going into the, the future. And these are important studies because they, they will allow us to look at certain things that a more controlled trial may not allow us to look at. Uh, and one of the things I often describe here is you know, it can be very hard from a dietary point of view to randomize a lot of people into different diets and expect them to adhere to that for a long, long period of time. But what we can do is go out into the wild and find people who have already chosen on their own accord to eat a certain way. Right. We know adherence is going to be high and we can watch them over a period of time. Now, often what comes up here is, well, how do you know that the health outcomes is a result of the way that those people are eating because you know perhaps people that are eating more fruits and vegetables and legumes are also smoking less drinking less right. doing more uh, exercise etc and the the first thing that i think is important here to to understand or well, the main thing is that the researchers doing this research are well aware of this limitation so they use what's called a multivariate analysis right and uh, essentially, they try and remove the effect of these other variables like alcohol and exercise so that you can see as best as possible the independent effect 
of diet on whatever outcome you're measuring. Could be the uh, number of heart attacks or strokes, or it could be uh, looking at blood pressure, or it could be looking at the incidence of dementia, for example, whatever outcome that study is interested in looking at. And it's, it's not going to be perfect, but that's a way of strengthening your association so that you are uh, removing these confounding variables as best as possible. And then uh, up above this level of science is where you have clinical trials. And these clinical trials are expensive, so they're usually much shorter term than the large observational studies that I just mentioned. And for that reason, quite often, instead of looking at a dietary intervention and, and looking at hard health outcomes like heart attacks and strokes, they do exist, those studies, but there's not a lot of them. Most of these look at sort of intermediary biomarkers, mm -hmm. what happens to cholesterol, what happens to blood pressure, things that changes that we can see sooner rather than having to follow people for decades and decades to see hard health outcomes. Uh, so that's more towards the top of the pyramid. And then above that is a, a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So if, if you have 10 different randomized controlled trials all looking at how the exact, the, all looking at the exact same question, for example, perhaps how does uh, a diet with more fruits and vegetables impact blood pressure? Then rather than just looking at Jeff's study, you might look at Jeff's study plus another nine studies from around the world, from different researchers, different countries to try and remove the likelihood of bias, pull those together and see if you have uh, some sort of significant effect. Um, and really... This evidence hierarchy, even though it is sort of positioning what science is more reliable and valid, what we want to see in an ideal world is all of these levels pointing in the same direction. Yeah. So, you know, what we see happening at a mechanistic level in an animal model or in a, a, an in vitro study is also happening observationally. And then is, you know, we're seeing the, uh, similar sort of consistent findings in the randomized controlled trials as well. Yeah, and it's, it seems as if there's that kind of consilience or consensus and replicability seems to then point to some good answers or to, to some good data. And, um, and uh, yeah, well, that's incredibly helpful. You know, it's for consumers or lay people that don't necessarily have uh, statistical or data analysis training, it can become incredibly confusing. Obviously, we, we've seen a lot uh, of studies emerge, you know, kind of in the COVID era, and people have grabbed on to little pieces. And certainly what you talk about when you talk about um, anecdotes, what I generally call anecdata, <laughs> where you can take um, a particular instance to give something plausibility mm -hmm. and then sensationalize over the top of that plausibility mm -hmm. with a particular bias in a way that triggers or leverages human negativity bias so people mm -hmm. can become triggered and scared 
um, and what I often refer to as amygdala hijacked. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, they're not actually really leveraging their prefrontal cortex. They're not really being able to reason about an issue mm -hmm. of import. So Yeah, the anecdotes, uh, you know, I think there's a misunderstanding about what a personal experience is and from a scientific point of view. Right. And, you know, we often hear, you know, what about my grandmother who smoked and drank alcohol and lived till 100, <laughs> right. right? And the, the thing to understand there is that when you look at life expectancy, mortality, and we look at uh, different types of lifestyle behaviors, it's actually expected that you will have people make it to 97, 98. They're called outliers. Yeah. And so when you look at the bell curve, it's not as if science can't explain those people. It can. It's, 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 it's possible to live to 97 with uh, poor lifestyle behaviors, but it's not probable. Mm -hmm. And so I think often, you know, just the way that we're wired, we can believe that our, our personal experience is exactly what everyone else would experience. Um, and that's not always the case. And another example of, of that to kind of build on it is, you know, often I see uh, claims about, let's say, a sort of magic juice cleanse for, for curing a type of cancer. And it may, it may well have. We don't know what that person's experience was. But what I always try and encourage people to think about is that in the absence of a clinical uh, a clinical study looking at that beverage and the cancer outcome. If all we hear is that success story, we have no idea about the number of people that would have also done that and had bad outcomes. So this is where having a properly controlled study is really important because you can see the full picture, not just the sort of N equals one anecdote. Yeah. Well, anecdotes also have a, a lot of emotional salience for people. Because we are emotional beings, mm -hmm. uh, or at least we're biochemical beings, and uh, we have certain um, processes in our body that are um, secreting um, neurotransmitters and neuromodulators that that create certain kinds of mood or mm. certain or uh, you know can trigger our sympathetic nervous system or our, or our parasympathetic nervous system, etc. And you know that can feel very true to you on an emotional level. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing about science is that it really needs to be underscored that it is not a fixed thing. Mm -hmm. A, it demands, good science demands, as you said, a tremendous amount of humility. It's always asking the question, why? And trying to come at finding the answer for that with no bias. And, and then there is a method to it, <laughs> that when leveraged properly, um, is incredibly flexible and versatile. Mm -hmm. It's not like the final word of God. <laughs> yeah, I think this yeah. is, is also a reminder during COVID. Yeah. I, I think this is also a really good reminder for all of us, uh, is that science is evolving. It's about yeah. reducing certainty. And, you know, I think part of the frustrations, uh, certainly among the public with, with COVID, is probably the uh, scientific communication from yeah. a government level could have been better. Right. And, and teaching people some of these principles may help them better understand how science works and feel more confident and trusting in that process. 
Okay. So now that you have been able to hone your skills for analysis, let's just look at sort of the history of Homo sapiens. We've been around here for a couple hundred thousand years. We seem to be flummoxed and completely befuddled by a number of things. Two primary things is how to live a good life. Mm-hmm. And the other one is what to actually put in our mouths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the former, uh, we've developed all sorts of epistemologies uh, from philosophies of, of well, Eastern philosophies dating back to 500 BC from Taoism and Confucianism. Uh, to Buddhism and Hinduism, to Abrahamic religions, uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, to Hellenistic philosophies of Stoicism and mm, Epicureanism and others. We still can't quite answer the question how to live a good life. And I think about these things as, as kind of linked because similarly, there is the world of food and um and for every philosophy and school of thought, there is a similar um, pescatarianism mm-hmm. or veganism or vegetarianism or paleo or keto or help me out a hundred other <laughs> Yeah, and there is a similar uh, proselytizing dogmatism or or tendency penchant for fundamentalism mm-hmm. around um, dietary uh, approaches. So. Why is there so much confusion? And as part of that, given the data that you've been able to glean and study, what is your primary thesis Mm -hmm. around how we should eat? So I think that a lot of the confusion stems from the fact that uh, we love absolutes (laughs) and absolutes sell. And when you write a, a New York Times bestselling book, or if you want to write a New York Times bestselling book, having a very absolute message is often a better way of getting there. And you know, part of that is because it's sexier, but perhaps part of that is also because you create a simplified message that is is easier to land right. and and therefore and implement. therefore yeah. implement. And and so I'm not suggesting that absolutes the intention is a bad one i think there is some good intention behind absolutes but the problem is that when you end up with all of these contradictory absolute messages (laughs) then you have this landscape of uh you know people in the public who are terribly confused if the science is settled how can this person write this book and this person write this book? How can I see this headline today and this headline tomorrow? And look, the 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 simple answer is that science is not absolute. And while it it is science is not confused, it is not that there is one single diet, dietary brand that we have made up that is clearly unanimously the best and the most optimal diet that everyone has to eat for good health. There are a number of different ways to to get to good health through your diet. And so my thesis is that rather than a single dietary brand that is you know, the clear winner, streets ahead, 
what we see is a very clear set of characteristics. And these characteristics are diets that are low in saturated fat. They provide a good amount of unsaturated fats. They're low in ultra-processed foods, which now make up about 60% of our calories. Uh, And they're rich in fiber and plant protein. And, you know, that can be an uncomfortable message for people because it's not as absolute. But I actually think it's more of an empowering message because there are, are a number of ways to get there. There are different variations of that theme that are possible depending on you know where your level of commitment lies lies and what feels right for you so you could adopt a very plant-rich mediterranean diet which is an omnivorous diet but it still ticks all of those boxes that i just described it could be a pescatarian diet it could be a vegetarian diet it could be a completely plant exclusive diet if it's done on whole foods so my thesis is that from a human health point of view, there is all of these different sort of dietary brands that share these same characteristics. They're very plant-rich diets. They, they have very few calories from ultra-processed foods. And compared to a typical standard American diet or standard Western diet, they do de-emphasize animal protein a little bit more. And then when we go beyond human health, my thesis extends and says, well, if we are to think about how our food choices affect the world around us and we think about uh, the planetary health and we think about all life on the planet, there is a stronger argument for adopting a diet that is as plant exclusive as possible for you. And so my message is, is more about the reader or the listener finding that sweet spot you know, no judgment. I love everyone unconditionally, no matter where they end up. And so find the sweet spot for you because what I want is people to move in this direction and find something that works they can sustain for decades. It's not about a two-week, you know, detox, quick fix, and then revert back. It's it's long-lasting, you know, life-lasting changes where they're going to see the best improvements in their health. And also, they're going to make the greatest contribution to the, to the planet and, and all life on the planet. So that's that's the thesis that I have overall. And uh, you know, I believe that it is it's it's rooted in evidence, and it's also very much considering the fact that you know, as humans, the more we align our actions with our values and beliefs, and I've experienced this myself personally, the the more peaceful, you know, more congruent life becomes. And so, um, you know, the offering is, is one of, of physical health, but also I believe more of a, a spiritual alignment as well. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and I think w- one of the things that you do so brilliantly in the book um, is explain a lot of the underlying mechanisms for why a particular diet is beneficial. Mm-hmm. Because as you say, there is no one size fits all. There's not one rule that's going to apply to every single person because everybody is a little bit different. You know, mm-hmm. maybe you had uh, had to have a number of rounds of, of broad spectrum antibiotics mm-hmm. for some infectious reason or, or mm-hmm. another. So your gut microbiome is going to be in a, di- a different place than someone 
who, who, who hasn't done that. Maybe someone has been more uh, susceptible or vulnerable to herbicides or toxins. Uh, maybe someone's iron in someone's blood, you know, moves uh, oxygen better than somebody else. So everybody is slightly different. But I do think once you understand the overall trends, which you present incredibly clearly, and then understand the underlying mechanisms of actually why things happen, then you become sort of a curator mm-hmm. of your own You're health. in control. Yes. You know, and that's the key. You, I believe you need to understand the mechanisms to yeah. feel more empowered. Uh, but you also just make a great point. I'm just thinking about this now. We've talked about evidence, evidence hierarchy. And I, I think this is overlooked. When we're looking at studies, usually we're looking at the ag- aggregate, the average result. Yes. But neither you nor I or the listener are, ref- are representative of the average. So there, there is always going to be this, in, this, this individualized approach to nutrition that I think is, is needed. Um, and, you know, when we perhaps take that more dogmatic hardline approach, we're overlooking that. Yeah, and the good news that's coming out of all of these new emerging fields of study like epigenetics or microbiome or even neuroplasticity is that we are not fixed. We are not destined Mm -hmm. by our underlying nucleotide sequence of our genetics that we have a tremendous amount of agency as it pertains to our health. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that, that even our cell expressions are malleable and and um, and can change in response to environment, or we can build new neural networks in response to environment. All this uh, that we can, if we pay attention to what we eat, we can repopulate a plethora of, of microbiota mm-hmm. such that we're upregulating all of these systems. So there is a good amount of control if you care to actually mm-hmm. know about the mechanisms. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, not too long ago, it was thought that decoding the human genome was going to solve chronic disease, right? Yeah. And it didn't. It, yeah. it failed miserably. And and then, of course, that same technology that was then applied to the the microbes, the thirty eight, forty trillion microbes that that live uh, within us and on us, uh, we were able to open Pandora's box, and and with that represents great opportunity. You know, we can, there's no way that the human genome can explain the sudden increase we've seen in obesity and cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, autoimmune conditions, allergies. It, the human genome is very stable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and while it does change, it, cha- it takes a very long time to change, much longer than, than would be able to explain what we've seen. Whereas the microbiome, which we know contains 100 times more genetic material than the human genome, you know, rapidly alters. And you know, if, you, if you look at, at studies looking at uh, groups of people that are not as industrialized, like the Hadza tribe, for example, it's very clear that uh, where, where they have a very rich, diverse microbiome that's flourishing. Imagine right now the most flourishing rainforest in the world and mm-hmm. all of this lush, you know, you've got plant species and animal species and running water. That's reflective of their microbiome. And then picture in your head more of a barren, deforested, degraded area of land. That's what's happening inside inside our colon uh, with 
with the industrialized world that we live in. And, you know, there are a number of different contributors to that disruption and loss of diversity, but diet is a huge one. And we, we, we uh, spoke earlier about this, the fact that 60% of calories in the diet are coming from ultra processed foods and we're eating too much animal protein. And what that's doing is it's pushing out these fiber rich, polyphenol rich foods that feed our microbes. And so in effect, the diet that we have adopted is starving this ecosystem. And when we, when we starve it, we don't reap the rewards that uh, it can offer us. And, and so I think it's important for us not to think about evolution, but to think about co-evolution. We co-evolved with these microbes that have been around for much, much longer than us, you know, billions of years, not just three, three million years. Yeah. And so uh, we are now seeing through greater visibility with, uh, you know, the uh, metagenomic shotgun sequencing and these different types of technology that have allowed us to look at the, the genes within these microbes, we're seeing that these very much hold uh, uh, hold the key to a lot of our health problems. And so uh, we need to treat our microbiome with respect. There's a lot of wisdom and experience uh, within the microbiome. And uh, if we do nourish it, it will reward us. So I guess, you know, largely when we're speaking about the microbiome, we're talking about the bacteria that reside in the colon and the colon's part of the large intestine. So if you think about uh, when you're eating food, uh, most of the absorption of your macronutrients, so your protein, which is then broken down into amino acids, also your fat um, and the digestible carbohydrates, that absorption will occur in the small intestine before it gets to the large intestine. However, there are components of our food that are not digested in the small intestine and they'll pass through to the large intestine where this bacteria resides. So this includes fiber, uh, both soluble and insoluble, but it also includes resistant starch and it also includes polyphenols, which is a very emerging area of science. Uh, we're now seeing that only 5% of polyphenols, uh, catechins in green tea, for example, or anthocyanins in, in berries, people will have heard of these uh, compounds. Uh, only 5% of these polyphenols are absorbed in the small intestine. 95% pass through the large intestine where they have prebiotic action. Mm. So just like prebiotic fiber, these polyphenols are food for the gut microbes for those 38 trillion uh, microbes that call your colon home. And uh, when you feed these uh, microbes with these substrates, they produce metabolites. And sometimes these are called postbiotics. So uh, these compounds, people may have heard of butyrate or acetate or propionate. These are short chain fatty acids that help suppress inflammation in the gut. They help keep that mucosal layer. And the mucosal layer I often describe sort of sits uh, between all of these bacteria. You have a bit of a wall. You have a mucosal layer and then you have the epithelial cells. And they separate 
all of this, this ecosystem, this wild ecosystem from your immune system. And the point of that is to stop any environmental pathogens or toxins from entering your body. It's a safeguard when it's functioning well. Now, when it is functioning well and we have this diet that's rich in fiber, we get this production of these metabolites that help maintain the integrity of those tissues, including the epithelial cells. And on the flip side, when you have a diet that is low in fiber, like the diet that we've just described, where it is full of ultra-processed foods. And ultra-processed foods have had a lot of the fiber stripped out of them. It's one of the, the problems with them. You begin to starve these microbes. And that mucosal layer is very interesting because it actually is made up of some carbohydrates that bacteria can feed on. But they only feed on that mucosal layer when they're not fed by mm. our food. So if you don't feed your microbes, they will literally start to feed on you and they'll break down the mucosal layer. And also at the same time, you're not getting the same amount of production of these short chain fatty acids like butyrate. And butyrate is the primary energy source of the epithelial cells that creates that intestinal lining. And it helps keep those epithelial cells healthy. Now, when there, when there is a, a lack of butyrate, you can get breakdown of the uh, epithelial cell wall, what's called tight junctions begin to separate. And then all of a sudden that beautiful wall that we have that is, that is stopping environmental toxins and bacterial endotoxins. Uh, lipopolysaccharides, LPS, people probably have heard of that. Uh, you know, when we have a diet that is depleted in fiber and we get breakdown of the mucosal layer and we get separation of these tight junctions, all of a sudden we, we, we see compounds, molecules entering into the blood system that shouldn't be there. Yeah. And this revs up the immune system. You see increased inflammation and you know, inflammation is a hallmark feature of all of these chronic diseases that that we've we've mentioned. So, uh, this is a you know a, a really interesting area of research. A lot of that is is findings that have emerged over just the past ten or fifteen so years, um, and is perhaps explaining at least partly why we're seeing such an increase in, in all these conditions that do have an underlying inflammatory component. So I think what you just described is perhaps the, the lodestar of what's going on around chronic disease. Mm -hmm. This underlying layer of chronic inflammation caused from intestinal permeability because a lot of these the tight junctions that hold together the epithelial wall are breaking down um, due to a number of different causes mm -hmm. now you outlined a number of them but there's also the overconsumption of NSAIDs or PPIs mm -hmm. or there could be toxins many people argue that herbicides like glyphosate contribute to the mm -hmm. to the um, to the decimation of the integrity of the wall, et cetera. Um, and obviously cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, um, heart disease, these, these main killers, they all share 
um, that underlying characteristic of, of, of chronic inflammation. So this point that you make, I think, is so important for people to understand. Now, you outlined sort of a happy scenario mm -hmm. where you're eating either resistant starches or um, indigestible fiber that is mm -hmm. and not polyphenols a, and polyphenols. But there's a flip side of that because not all bacteria are created equal, mm -hmm. right? So there's so the the postbiotics, if you will, or these metabolites that are created by the bacteria in the gut, they're they're not always creating these short chain fatty acids mm -hmm. that are beneficial to health if they're fed other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So can you pull on that thread a bit? Yeah, sure. So you can you can Usually in this state of a fiber-deprived gut, there's a lot of the ultra-processed foods and animal foods. And the, the sort of flip side scenario here where you lose microbiome diversity, you usually get an elevation of pathogenic bacteria. And these bacteria, rather than producing metabolites that are rewarding you and working in your favor, are, are actually actually... Uh, associated with poor health, for example, for example, uh, metabolites that are associated with cancer. Uh, so uh, you can essentially you can eat in a way where you you are creating a microbiome ecosystem that is supporting good health, or it can be driving disease. And uh, you know, fortunately, now there is a, a number of studies showing that it is rapidly. Uh, adaptable so you know if you're listening right now and you're freaking out and thinking <laughs> thinking that you you perhaps have been starving your microbiome and that you probably have a, a lack of diversity perhaps as a child you did take a lot of antibiotics uh you know there is good news there is a lot that you can do to quickly change your microbiome composition to actually change intestinal permeability and there was a a, a recent study out called the maple study yeah uh, that was a randomized controlled trial and this one's really neat because we know from lots of different studies that fiber will will increase the uh the numbers of bacteria that produce butyrate right and we just spoke about why that's important but what this study looked at was a polyphenol rich diet and so they, they actually uh, matched a control diet uh, to the polyphenol diet in terms of fiber, the same amount of fiber in each diet. The only difference was there was about 500 milligrams more polyphenols in the polyphenol-rich diet coming from foods like green tea and pomegranate and apple puree, right. for example. And this was an eight-week uh, dietary intervention and they were able to show that those that polyphenol rich diet increased butyrate uh, producing bacteria and decreased intestinal permeability hmm. so um, you know there there's there's a bunch of great science out there showing that really the key to to promoting this microbiome that is going to reduce our risk of all of these diseases and drive down inflammation starts with eating more whole plant foods, and as we've all heard many times, eating the rainbow. Yeah. Okay. So we've covered the benefits of a plant-focused, fiber-rich diet for the gut and the, uh, the beneficial 
uh, metabolites that up- upregulate all kinds of systems mm-hmm. in your body. And then the downside of eating a saturated fat, dense animal protein diet that, uh, that might um, uh, stimulate bacteria to create compounds like Hydrogen sulfide, and ammonia, and, ammonia, and, and uh, secondary bile acids. Yeah, yeah, the list goes on. Goes on, and and you know you and it's it seems highly correlated with colorectal cancer, mm-hmm. other forms of intestinal bowel mm-hmm. distress, and, and and so so there seems to be at least in the gut very very compelling evidence to focus on a on a plant based diet, but one of the common most common questions um, that comes up, even in response, even if everybody knew, mm-hmm. you know, what you just outlined, is like, okay, but I need protein, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, if I'm eating only plants, like, where am I going to get my protein? Mm-hmm. So, can you take a minute and and untangle this myth a little sure. bit about protein? Yeah. So, firstly, all plants contain all of the essential amino acids that our body requires. And, and perhaps that, that the best on-ramp here is to explain what amino acids are and what protein is. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, there are 20 or, or 21 amino acids, yeah. depending on which, which uh, uh, source you read. And nine of these amino acids are considered essential and the other 11 or so are considered non-essential. Now, these amino acids you can think of as building blocks the body uses amino acids to create protein, like collagen, for example. These are long strands of amino acids. Now, uh, one of the sort of common myths out there is that plants are missing essential amino acids, the amino acids that you have to get from your diet. Uh, and that's not true. All nine of the essential amino acids can actually be found in every plant, but they are in varying ratios. And where this could become problematic, just to to, to sort of paint a picture as to how silly this is, uh, for most of us, I should say, is if you were to get all of your calories from rice, say you didn't eat anything else, then you would fall short for your daily requirements of one amino acid lysine. Uh, if you were to eat all of your calories from beans, depending on which bean it was, you would get all of the essential amino acids you ne- you require, except for possibly fall short on one methionine. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that sort of uh, is only really important if you're living off a, a very restricted diet. Perhaps you live in an area of the world where there's food insecurity, but most of us are eating with some diversity. And so where one plant is a little lower in a certain essential amino acid, another plant is picking up the slack. And overall, across your day, you're getting all of those essential amino acids you need in the right amounts. That's that's not to say that it's still not important to know what are the protein-rich plant foods because you still want to be including those in your diet. Uh, and most, most of the very protein-rich plant foods are legumes. So you will get some protein from all of your fruits and vegetables and whole grains and nuts and seeds, but legumes will provide most of it. 
And so you've got all of your different beans, kidney beans and black beans and pinto beans. You have chickpeas, you have tofu, you have tempeh. Then in addition to all of that, you have some other very rich uh, uh, protein-rich plant-based foods like seitan, which mm-hmm. can be an option for people if they're okay with gluten, for example. Um, and there are more processed forms like textured vegetable protein. We could get into some of that stuff if you if you want to. Um, but overall, when when you look at consistently look at studies of vegetarian and vegan communities. They are consuming above the recommended daily intake for protein. Um, But if you're a very active person, let's say you're a very active person and your protein intake is a little bit higher than uh, a sedentary person, the the current RDI or RDA is about 0.83 grams per kilogram. And there is actually some evidence to suggest that this actually might be a slightly low for for everyone, omnivores and uh, and uh, vegetarians or, or vegans. It's probably more about one to one point one grams per kilo, where the the RDI should be. Um, but if you're uh, an athlete and say you're someone that's wanting to maximize muscle protein synthesis, then the, the, the amount of protein that you're going to want to strive to consume is about 1.6 grams per kilogram. And I can tell you that that is absolutely achievable through, through plant-based food. So, uh, you know, the myth is still alive. And, uh, but sometimes I understand why the question exists, right? Because animal foods are very, very protein dense. Uh, and, and plant foods uh, do contain, tend to contain less protein per calorie that's right. true but you overall you can still consume uh you know adequate protein and the, the right amount of protein depending on your goals so yeah i think part of the confusion is at a very kind of surface level when people assume that they're eating protein and the way that protein is marketed in our common uh western world anyways is you know fish meat poultry mm-hmm. you look at the menu or a waiter comes to you uh, when you've ordered a salad and they they say, would you like some protein with that? And what they mean is, you know, meat or chicken or fish generally. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a confusion that we think we're eating the protein and all of a sudden that protein is going to appear on our bicep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, you know, once you understand the mechanisms a little bit more closely, you realize that you actually have to break down proteins into their amino acid form and that your body is designed through some miracle of intelligence to synthesize proteins at the cellular level. That's one thing that's happening at the cellular level. There's also energy production and other things going on. But what you're really doing, there's a process of catabolism of basically breaking down um, food through your digestive system um, into these individual amino acids that get taken up by your, in your into your blood, well, into your liver, mm-hmm. and and then eventually to the cell. Um, and your body is then producing proteins for structure like muscles or enzymes or cytokines or et cetera. There's a lot of different kinds of proteins in the body. 
But there's just, a, I think that that one idea was a trigger for me mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, it seems so obvious, mm-hmm. but, um, but there's a process by which the body actually has to break down the amino acids mm-hmm. and then rebuild them back up. And the, the source for how you get those amino acids is broad and, and wide. And, you know, there's also, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, a little bit of confusion around kind of complete proteins, mm-hmm. generally dairy and, and meat are considered these complete proteins, but mm-hmm. plants aren't. Yeah, and that makes you yes. think that the plants are missing an amino acid, right. and it's, but they're not They're not actually missing it. That definition really goes back to what I was saying before. A complete protein is considered, if you were to eat that food for all of your calories, that single food, you would get all of the amino acids in the required amounts. But again, it's a bit of a silly definition to be using in the in the Western world. Mm-hmm. One of the things that often comes up here, though, is around absorption and bioavailability. Yeah. So you're right in that once these amino acids, once this protein that we eat is broken down into amino acids and enters our body, our body really knows no different. You know, leucine, methionine mm. from an animal or a plant, once it's already broken down to that building block, our body sees it as exactly the same thing. Uh, but what often uh, comes up is, well, can your body absorb and the, the protein from plants as well as animal foods? And uh, historically, it was thought that the bioavailability of animal proteins are were much, much higher than, than plant proteins. And a lot of this was based off research in animals. So I was looking at animal models, feeding them animal and plant protein, and essentially seeing uh, how much protein ends up in their poo. Uh, and you can get an idea as to how much they actually absorbed. Now, there are are some problems with that research although it was interesting and a nice first step pretty much all of those studies were feeding the animals raw plant protein and that's a problem because we know that for example cooking beans increases the availability of nutrients you know Mm -hmm. it's one of the reasons why we do it and so uh these studies were overestimating the difference in absorption between animal and and plant protein. And more recently, we've now seen absorption studies done in humans. And what we see is that there's only a very small difference, probably only a couple of percent, which is not a a clinically significant difference in absorption. So bioavailability appears to be relatively similar. And what matters most is actually health outcomes. What when you eat more plant protein versus animal protein, what do we see in terms of disease risk? And also when we're looking at athletes, what do we see in terms of lean muscle and strength? Um, and we see very consistently in these large epidemiology studies, people eating more plant protein have lower risk of chronic disease. And uh, very interestingly, just in the past year, we, we saw a study looking at athletes And this was the first study of of its kind, which matched animal protein and plant protein. It was a randomized controlled trial, two groups. One did a completely uh, vegan diet. So all of their protein was coming from plants and the other was an omnivorous diet. And they matched both of them at 1.6 grams per kilogram. And that's important because consistently we've seen in science that if you want to, to optimize Uh, lean muscle development and strength, you need to hit that 1.6 gram per kilogram mark. Mm -hmm. And they put these subjects through resistance training 
uh, a couple of full body workouts a week and measured their lean muscle growth and measured their strength over an eight-week period. And what they saw was there was zero differences between the two groups. And that really surprised the the researchers actually. And uh, I'm in contact with a lot of these these sort of protein researchers around the world, and they're starting to change their their view of how they think about animal and plant protein. And um, you know, very much now, uh, the the sort of prevailing idea is that it's the amount of protein that matters more than the source. Got it. So we know that a plant based fiber-rich diet now is is better for the gut. It's better for uh, our microbiota. We know that we can access the protein we need or the amino acids that we need from plants for protein synthesis. What about energy production in the body? So our body has, we're non-photosynthetic cells, so mm. we create uh, ATP uh, in our mitochondria. Can you talk a little bit about that process of what the body needs to actually produce energy and how do carbohydrate-based plants deliver on that? Well, I mean, this is a, I'm not sure how deep you want me to go here. I mean, you can, uh, I'll wave you off if it goes too crazy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> we don't have to the, go into the intricacies the, the, of the Krebs yeah, the, cycle. The, 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 exactly. There's, yeah. there's some deep sort of yeah. biology, biochem here, but yeah. I'll save people that. Um, maybe we can do the Krebs cycle another time. Yeah. I love the Krebs cycle, but that's another thing. Uh, but I mean, basically the, the, uh, the body requires uh, glucose to produce energy and uh, carbohydrates, which are found in uh, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes, are providing the substrate for that energy production. Uh, and, you know, carbohydrates or glucose is the, pr- the body's preferred energy source. Right. Definitely. Um, and, you know, you can produce energy in the absence of, of, of carbohydrates in the diet. For example, a ketogenic diet, uh, that goes, you know, an, another process where we, we create energy another way. But I guess I'm not sure exactly what you want me to, to answer on that other than the fact that, uh, our, our body will utilize the carbohydrates or break it down into to glucose and use that to produce energy. Yeah, I think that's the main point because I think just to get really clear for people, like what the body actually needs from food and, um, and what is the best way to get that. So when we think about eating meat or dairy, we think about like, okay, I need to fulfill my protein quotient or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we we address that. Um, I think I, I'm not sure that people make all the connections around what carbohydrates and glucose does in the body. But just to be clear, it feeds kind of this metabolic pathway mm-hmm. that goes through glycolysis, the Krebs cycle, and then eventually this electron chain transport mm-hmm. cycle to create ATP. Which and, is energy. Which is energy. And of course, the poetic miracle of that is that the byproduct of that is carbon dioxide and water, which feeds this whole mm-hmm. beautifully designed carbon cycle 
uh, with our friends, the plants, because of course that's what they need and they produce glucose and oxygen. And this is of course a, a greater, broader philosophical or even spiritual conversation that we can have about how we actually are nature. Mm -hmm. We actually are part of this whole thing. But I think for the purposes of this conversation, it's more like, okay, we know now that plants check the box on everything that mm -hmm. we need. But then there's a whole nother thing to look about on uh, and examine, and that's disease. And so I wonder if you could spend a little bit of time talking about the most prevalent diseases mm -hmm. and how different diets, um, what, what the relationship between different mm -hmm. diets are in those diseases. Yeah, great question. So there are uh, ways that our diet modulates our risk for these diseases. So cardiovascular disease, having a, a heart attack, for example, like my dad had when he was just 41 years old, uh, or your risk of stroke or your risk of fatty liver disease, which about 25% of the adult population now has, or your risk of type 2 diabetes or your risk of Alzheimer's, dementia. A lot of these different chronic diseases share the same risk factors. Mm -hmm. You know, we see the same thing, be it inflammation, insulin resistance, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, you know, to name some of the big ones. And uh, if we look at those risk factors for a moment, a diet that is, let's say, high in saturated fat and low in whole plant foods, it's high in sodium uh, and high in ultra processed foods and usually uh, providing an excess of calories. That is a great way to increase your cholesterol. It's a great way to increase your blood pressure. It's a great way to increase insulin resistance, which makes it hard for glucose to get into the cell to then produce energy. Uh, it's a good way to increase your inflammation. And really, all of this is coalescing to increase your risk of developing these chronic diseases. Uh, whereas on the flip side, a diet that is rich in whole plant foods you know, naturally, unless it's a diet that is plant-based and includes a whole lot of tropical oils like coconut or palm, and we can talk about that, one of the big benefits of these very plant-predominant diets is that they're naturally low in saturated fat, yeah. and they provide a good amount of unsaturated fats. They're rich in potassium and magnesium and lower in salt, which helps lower your blood pressure for example, and uh, being low in saturated fat and being uh, very rich in fiber and usually uh, leading to lower overall uh, caloric intake and less likelihood of becoming overweight, you're more likely to be uh, very insulin sensitive, you know, less, less at risk of developing insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. And so uh, these are kind of the primary drivers of how a plant-based diet is helping you lower your these modifiable risk factors you're moving these modifiable risk factors in your favor uh, and so you know it's a little bit about what foods you're leaving off the plate and also about what the foods you're adding to the plate what are they they bringing to the game as well yeah so let's hover on saturated fats for a minute can you break down the relationship between the consumption of saturated fats 
and the prevalence of low density lipoprotein LDL mm-hmm. um, in the system and how that correlates to heart disease. Mm-hmm. So if- Firstly, I used I, I like to explain the relationship between LDL cholesterol and heart disease, and uh, we know from genetic studies, folks with elevated LDL cholesterol, um, familial hypercholesterolemia, they have significantly higher risk of developing coronary artery disease. Some of them will develop coronary artery disease in their twenties or thirties, and so. Uh, at, at more of a cellular level, having uh, elevated LDL cholesterol actually means you have more of a lipoprotein called ApoB lipoprotein. And we might go a little bit into the weeds here. But uh, in short, what happens when you have elevated levels of LDL cholesterol is you end up with more fatty plaque being laid down in your arteries. And this... Uh, builds up and becomes what's called atherosclerosis and leads to a blockage of the artery, which then affects the supply of oxygenated blood to your heart in the case of a heart attack or to your brain in the case of a, of a stroke. So uh, first level of evidence, we know that people with genetically high LDL cholesterol, higher risk of coronary artery disease. Then we have population-wide evidence, so large populations. We look at their incidence of coronary artery disease and we look at their LDL cholesterol levels. And again, we can see pointing in the same direction, higher LDL cholesterol, higher risk of coronary artery disease. And then we have clinical trials. So these are pharmaceutical trials looking at populations of, uh, of subjects with cardiovascular disease if we put them on lipid-lowering drugs, what happens to their risk of having a cardiovascular event? And we see significant reductions. Uh, then we also have, going back to genetic, we have, we have science on the other side. So there are, there are people with genetically low LDL cholesterol, very lucky. And uh, there are over 50 different uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms, SNPs they're called, which are genetic variants that lower someone's LDL cholesterol. And each of these different, you know, 50 plus genetic variants will lower LDL cholesterol a little differently. But what we see is a perfect line. The greater the magnitude of the LDL cholesterol lowering from that genetic variant, the the greater the reduction in risk of coronary artery disease that that person has. So we have uh, all of these levels of evidence, different types of evidence pointing in the same direction, enough for the European Atherosclerosis Society to publish a paper saying that this is deemed causal in Mm. that high LDL cholesterol causes coronary artery disease yeah and i from reading your book um i was pointed to the new food recommendations that were doled out by the canadian government Mm -hmm. and i was amazed how progressive Mm -hmm. it was it was really hard yeah they unintended they they came out in 2019 and they put their hand up and said this is the first time we will not accept industry input 
yeah. into the guidelines. <laughs> and they're they're definitely advocating a very plant-predominant diet. It was the first time, actually, that they took dairy out as an essential food group. And they say specifically to choose plant protein over animal protein where possible. And just last week, actually, the American Heart Association just brought out their 2021 guidelines and they followed suit. It's essentially the same as those uh, Health Canada guidelines. They again make it clear to choose plant protein over animal protein. And a lot of that, there are a number of reasons, you know, it increases fiber as well in doing that switch, eating beans instead of eating red meat. But a lot of it is also about lowering the saturated fat in the diet. And this comes back to the start of your question is we know from a lot of science dating back all the way to the 1950s where researchers were you know, running studies that would be hard to run today, bring, bring a, a lot of human subjects into a metabolic ward setting and feed them different types of fats and measure their cholesterol levels. And there were 300 plus different studies done. And there has been one paper that's kind of put all of those together in a meta-analysis. But what was very clear is when you feed humans saturated, fat, uh, saturated fats, you see their LDL cholesterol go up significantly. Whereas when you feed uh, humans polyunsaturated fats, these fats that are typically found in abundance in, in plant foods like nuts and seeds, but also in, in fish as well, you see a reduction in LDL cholesterol. And specifically, these researchers were able to produce uh, an equation. And that equation shows that the saturated fat per gram will raise LDL cholesterol twice as much as polyunsaturated fat per gram will lower it. Mm. And why, why is this interesting and, and important? Well, when we start to think about, well, what foods are rich in saturated fat and what foods are rich in unsaturated fats, it gives us some, some really instructive things to, to think about when it comes to formulating our overall dietary pattern. So the foods that are providing most saturated fat are red meat, are dairy, and ultra-processed foods. Sometimes ultra-processed foods we think of as just refined carbohydrates, right. but they also provide a lot of the saturated fats in the diet, whereas the foods that are rich in the unsaturated fats are the marine uh, sources of omega-3s like fatty fish, but also your nuts and, and seeds. And so um, you know, this is why these guidelines are clearly pushing people towards these very plant-rich diets. Yeah, and what it se what seems to be the most dangerous elixir is this combination of inflammation in the vascular system with high levels of LDL, mm -hmm. because the body does produce some LDL mm -hmm. endogenously in the liver, and it can actually perform a beneficial function at the right levels. I think it it contributes to sort of cell membrane development and, and flexibility, and uh, it has some um, relationship to upregulating bioavailability of certain foods. Um, and typically, when there's the right amount of LDL in your blood system or in your bloodstream, it's actually um, a reductant. Um, it's going through, and it's an anti-inflammatory, um, and it's then just it goes through and then gets carried away quite easily by HDL or by macrophages. Mm -hmm. When your vascular system is nice and 
glassy and it's as if the Zamboni had just kind of run across it. But where we seem to see the biggest trouble is when there is inflammation due to smoking or toxins, or this is actually one of the things I wanted to ask you, there seems to be emerging evidence around a compound um, that is created in the gut called TMA, mm -hmm. which then subsequently the liver makes into TMAO, which also might be contributing mm -hmm. to this inflammation in the vascular system. And if you can kind of even just imagine it, the LDL is moving through that system. When it's abrased and pocked, there's more likelihood mm -hmm. that it's going to get lodged into the wall of the mm -hmm. artery and, and then can't get swept out cleanly. And then it kind of becomes this foam and then subsequently a plaque mm -hmm. and then you're in trouble. So can you, yeah. can you address There's a some few of that? things to kind of unpack there. Yeah. Uh, certainly there are extra risk factors that will heighten someone's risk over and above just having high LDL cholesterol like inflammation. Often you hear about oxidation, yeah. for example. Uh, but I think it is important to understand that the studies looking at LDL cholesterol being causal in coronary artery disease, they still, it's very clear that even when uh, controlling for oxidation, having high LDL cholesterol still places you at significantly higher risk of a coronary yeah. um, event. So uh, I don't want people to think that having high LDL cholesterol, <laughs> as long as your inflammation is low, is not an issue. It still seems to be a significant risk factor. Um, now, on the topic of... TMA and TMAO. I think this is fascinating. Um, actually, before I, t I, I touch on that, the other thing about LDL cholesterol, you make a good point that our body does make it. And uh, the, the current sort of normal value that doctors would use is about 100 milligrams per deciliter. Uh, would be considered normal. But there is a lot of research there that has come out over the years, and there's a recent one out of Spain with 4,000 subjects where they look at uh, a, these subjects, look at their, their LDL cholesterol levels, and then they they look at the amount of atherosclerosis that they have. And, and this study out of Spain called the PISA study, these were healthy subjects. They were able to show that even at that 100 milligram per deciliter level, 40-odd percent of people had subclinical atherosclerosis. Mm. And this is consistent with a lot of other research showing that it's not until you get to 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower where you see people with arteries that have no atherosclerosis. And in fact, Lauren Cordain, who is like the kind of father of the paleo diet, he actually published a paper in 2005 pointing this out and that might sound a little conflicting to people if they think about <laughs> what the paleo diet is is like right but you have to understand his version of the paleo diet is not how people are adopting it you know online he was very much advocating for a low saturated fat high fiber diet um and that's a whole nother discussion as to how our ancestors ate or, or didn't <laughs> eat um but point being that I want to make there is that although we've accepted 100 milligrams per deciliter as normal, that's kind of normal in an unhealthy population. Really optimal is 70 milligrams per deciliter or lower. Um, and on the, on the point of TMA, TMAO, I'm I'm watching this quite closely. It's yeah. it's very interesting. There's a lot. It's it's 
it's very emerging science. And so there is this association between TMAO levels and coronary artery disease, 100%. However, the, the interesting thing is there are Mendelian randomization studies looking at folks with uh, genetically high levels of TMAO and then not at increased risk of coronary heart disease. So I'm kind of re- reserving judgment just a little bit until mm-hmm. there's, there's more data um, to, to work out is this a correlation or is it actually causation. And I think what will happen here is because there is so many studies showing an association, you'll probably see some pharmaceutical drugs coming out that lower TMAO, and then we'll be able to see if there's a, a sort of significant effect in terms of health outcomes. Yeah. Well, of course, this is what modern allopathic medicine tends to do, which is address symptoms and not underlying root causes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and if I'm correct, TMA is a is a metabolite produced by bacteria in the colon, I believe, mm-hmm. from high-dense proteins. Mm-hmm. So the jury's still out, but there's some reason to be concerned. Yeah, it's um, an interesting... It. I'm seeing studies now use it as a biomarker, as, as mm-hmm. a sort of primary outcome. Yeah. And part of me thinks that might be a little preliminary because we haven't yet established it as sort of causal. Uh, but... It, you know, it's, it's one to keep an eye on. And then the other part of this story that I think is interesting is that fish contain TMA. Yeah. However, fish are associated with a reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, maybe that's because we have to think about food matrix and maybe it's because the omega-3s uh, and their effect on cardiovascular system outweighs the negative effect of TMA. There's a lot of unresolved questions. Yeah, there. I did read that about fish and it was like, oh, very triggering for yeah. me. I had to check my bias at the door there yeah. and I was like, hmm, but this is the great thing about science, mm-hmm. right? Because this is how we figure this stuff out mm-hmm. um, is to, you know, is to have these hypotheses and then apply the methods of science. So just to close the loop on on LDL levels and, and coronary artery disease, basically... If you eat a diet high in saturated fats, your LDL, your LDL levels are going to go up. And right now, the most common treatment for that on a pharmaceutical level are statins. Mm-hmm. The problem with statins is that you actually need cholesterol for other compounds in your body. So cholesterol, I believe, is a precursor for the the hormone cortisol, and I believe it's also a precursor for testosterone. So the, you know, taking a statin every day for the rest of your life, which is what, you know, the pharmaceutical industry for all of their glorious innovation and all of their warts and misaligned incentives, but that's really what they want. They want you to take Mm -hmm. something every day for the rest of your life. And there is a simple way around that, not in every single human body, but in many human bodies, and that is simply to reduce your consumption mm-hmm. of saturated fats. Is that correct? Yes. So, I mean, there are a lot of things we can do from a diet component, and you know, there is some variability, but certainly the average LDL cholesterol 
in this country and in Australia is sitting at about 125, 130 milligrams per deciliter. So I, what I just described before was optimals below 70. So we're almost double, double. Yeah. Where, where it should be. And, and you know, no wonder cardiovascular disease is the number one disease in these countries. Uh, you know, I think with, with the statins, uh, you know, my, my advice certainly is, you know, why not make changes to your diet if you can lower your use of statins or avoid using them? You know, I think that's a sensible uh, bit of advice for anyone. I would push back slightly in terms of do uh, statins lead to negative changes to hormone production? Mm-hmm. I think from the data that I've looked at, even when uh, subjects are put on fairly extreme lipid-lowering medications. Uh, they, they've measured testosterone and measured the production of different hormones, and they still are producing optimal amounts. So uh, I'd be happy to look at yeah. any data that suggests otherwise. But, then, but Simon, then why are the Lipitor commercials in Viagra back-to-back? <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, I mean um, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite ironic. Yeah. Uh, and and look, I'm I'm not saying that there are no side effects to statins. There yeah. there are some side effects, uh, and uh, certainly that's something for people to consider. But equally equally speaking, um, you know they're they're life saving in many many cases for people who are struggling to get their cholesterol down or won't make dietary changes, for example. Um, so you know I think there's a little bit of nuance there. Yeah. So let's talk about the other big prevalent killer, particularly in the United States. The statistics are just mind-boggling, type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, people might say, but Simon, you're telling me to eat carbs, Mm. and isn't carbs sugar? And isn't sugar going to spike my glucose levels? Mm -hmm. And and isn't that kind of what diabetes is? I mean, I sort of get insulin resistance. I sort of understand that the pancreas cannot make enough mm-hmm. insulin, but really, do I, don't I just want to avoid carbs because that's going to sp- spike my, mm. uh, my glucose levels? So help us with this. Yeah. I mean, we, blaming carbohydrates is, is really shooting the messenger. You know, when you're getting the, the big spike in, in, in glucose from eating a banana or any type of whole plant food that contains unrefined carbohydrates, that's really a signal to you that something is, is wrong metabolically in your cells that needs to be corrected. You could remove carbohydrates and sure, you'd have a flat blood glucose level, but it's really just a Band-Aid. You're not getting to the root cause of the insulin resistance. So, uh, you know, what what's driving type 2 diabetes? Uh, you know, largely it's it's being driven by obesity and excessive calorie consumption. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of this ties back to what we've been speaking about, 60% of calories coming from ultra processed foods. We know from very tightly controlled trials that these ultra processed foods create hedonic hunger. Hmm. They, they, that is to say that you are still hungry in the absence of a physiological requirement for energy, continuing to eat. Uh, and so what, 
What I usually uh, want people to understand when talking about type 2 diabetes, and particularly if we're looking at treatment for, for type 2 diabetes from a dietary point of view, by far the most important thing is weight loss, mm. by far. And we see uh, very consistently across the research for those living with type 2 diabetes, you know, losing 10 to 15 kilograms seems to be the best thing that they can do to reverse that insulin resistance. Uh, and there is a lot of arguing from side to side as to whether you do that with a low-carb or a high-carb diet. And what, what we actually see is that when, you, when these diets have been put up against each other head-to-head, there is no clear winner. And uh, Stanford University did a study called Diet Fits, Professor Christopher Gardner comparing a low-carb diet with a high-carb diet. And he's renowned for, for making sure these diets, that the quality is very high. You know, not to set up one of the arms of this study to fail, which can often be done. <laughs> so he makes sure that these are uh, a whole food-focused uh, low-carb and, and high-carb diet. And Diet Fits went for 12 months and they they found no significant difference in weight loss between the two groups. But here's what they did see, which was very interesting. In each group, some people did well and some people did poorly. There was a, a very individualized response and none of that could be explained by insulin resistance or certain genes that are thought to be obesogenic. Hmm. So the researchers are kind of left not understanding why someone would do well on low carb versus someone doing well on high carb. My, my message to people about this is really you need to find the, uh, the way of eating that you can sustain and helps you lose weight. If that's low carb, great. If that's high carb, great. Either way, it should be plant-based. Because you can do both of those in a plant-predominant or plant-exclusive manner. And that is likely to, to lead to the best results. And in terms of whether we're talking about obesity or type 2 diabetes or cardiovascular disease. So maybe you could address the um, this idea of appetite. Because... When I think about carbs versus high-density proteins, for example, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, oh, well, carbs are absorbed more quickly and more easily in my small intestine, and hence, I'm going to be hu- more hungry more quickly, mm-hmm. and hence, I'm going to eat more. Mm-hmm. Um, can you address that idea of, of appetite and maybe also address the um, the role that leptin mm-hmm. might play in the equation. Yeah, protein is actually very satiating. Um, so that's that's one thing we know absolutely. And and time and time again, elevating protein in the diet does lead to reduced calorie intake and improved body composition, for sure. Um, now, when it comes to carbohydrates, I think it's 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 important. We haven't really uh, dug into this, but it's a it's a it's an umbrella term, yeah. and it means everything from a black bean to a jelly bean. 
right? <laughs> and yeah. clearly those, those have different effects on our uh, physiology and on our appetite. And certainly if we're eating a lot of refined carbohydrates and you get a big spike in blood glucose, it, it enters our bloodstream quickly and then we get the drop we can feel very hungry. We don't get the same response in terms of these appetite suppressing hormones, right? And you mentioned leptin before. Uh, whereas when our carbohydrates are not what I call naked, like they are in refined foods, ultra processed packaged foods, but instead have their clothes on. So these are carbohydrates that are sitting next to fiber and water and phytochemicals we slow down the absorption and instead of getting this quick spike in glucose, we get a more gradual release into our and sustained release of these uh, of glucose into our bloodstream and therefore uh, a better uh, appetite regulating response from some of these hormones that are actually produced uh, from the microbiome. We were talking about that before. And so, uh, Although we like to lump carbohydrates, you know, into this sort of one category, they do have very different effects on uh, our physiology and on our appetite. So take-home point here is protein-rich foods will help definitely lower your uh, appetite, suppress your appetite, but so will high-fiber foods. So again, you know, leaning into these whole plant foods is and leaning uh, out or away from these ultra processed foods is a good way to feel fuller on less calories. Mm -hmm. Are there any other um, micronutrients that we might be missing out on mm -hmm. with a plant-based mm -hmm. diet? You know, a, a lot of people associate calcium with dairy mm -hmm. or uh, B12 with meat consumption. Um, can you kind of pull on that for a minute and where yeah. you might um, recommend supplementation, mm -hmm. et cetera? So I would say the probably the four that I would focus on, I write about eight in the book, but uh, a lot of these you can get through food by just tweaking your diet and putting specific foods in like Brazil nuts will get you your daily dose of selenium, for example, right. and make it very easy to do so. But the four that I'd like to speak about are vitamin B12, iodine, vitamin D3, and calcium, uh, because as you say, it's commonly associated with dairy, so it's it's very frequently a, a sort of asked question. So let's go through those. Vitamin B12 is going to be one that you're going to want to supplement. And you can get vitamin B12 through fortified foods, certainly, but you need to be consistent with that. And I find for most people, a supplement is a, is a better way to sort of safeguard against a B12 deficiency. And... Uh, I recommend people take 250 micrograms of a B12 supplement on a daily basis, or you can also take once a week two and a half thousand micrograms. So whatever sort of works better with your uh, routine. Then you have vitamin D3, and this is really important for everyone, um, not just plant-based eaters, uh, particularly people living in northern latitude where they're not exposed to the sun as much. And uh, you can go and get your all, all of these. You should you should do blood tests, lab tests, so you can keep an eye objectively on where your levels are at. Um, but really, uh, vitamin D, almost everyone is low, <laughs> almost. Um, perhaps 
not if you live in Los Angeles and you're in the sun all the time or in Sydney where I live, but most Westerners around the world are somewhat low in it. And you, you, you will want to supplement with at least 1,000 to 2,000 IU. Common question I often get here is that a lot of vitamin D3 is animal derived and certain, mm. some, certain people yeah. do not want that. Uh, and that's a great question. So now you can get vitamin D3 from plant lichen. You just need to read the label and check that that's where it's uh, sourced from. Or you can get uh, a vitamin uh, D2 from sourced from a mushroom. So there are those two options. Uh, then you have iodine, which really is not spoken about that much. I think it deserves more airtime. You know, there's a reason there's iodized salt in this country and in many countries because uh, a lot of people within a society have problems with getting enough iodine in their diet, particularly if you're not eating a lot of seafood. Uh, you only require a very small amount. It's a trace mineral, about 150 micrograms per day. And so if if you're eating a, a plant-exclusive diet, really there is three ways that you can you can get enough iodine the first is regular consumption of certain seaweeds like dulse and wakame you can buy these as flakes hmm. and you you need about uh, half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of that per day depends on the brand it's best to turn around look at the inf nutritional information panel and see uh what serving size is required to get at least 150 micrograms. Now, certain people don't, don't love uh, recommending uh, that as the best source for iodine, and there's a reason for that. Uh, seaweed, the iodine content in seaweed around the world does vary a lot. So it can be somewhat unpredictable. If that's the route that you choose, you can do a urinary iodine test periodically to ensure that your levels are at a, a healthy level, optimal level. Second option is iodized salt. Uh, about half a teaspoon of iodized salt will provide 150 micrograms. Again, read the label. That's uh, going to be an option that, that could be okay as long as you do not have hypertension, high blood pressure, and you're trying to, to restrict diet, uh, sodium in your diet. And the third option is if you're taking some form of uh, multivitamin or you want to take a single uh, nutrient uh, mineral, you can get uh, an iodine supplement. And so you want to look on the back that it's providing 150 micrograms in a serve, uh, and that can be an easy way. And the reason that's important is that iodine is crucial to your uh, thyroid hormone production, which is integral to your metabolism and, and cell function throughout the body. Uh, and I do want to point out that this is particularly important if someone is pregnant um, for, the, for the developing brain. So uh, if you're pregnant, consider iodine very closely. Make sure you know where you're getting it from. It, it is in most prenatals. And actually the iodine requirement during pregnancy bumps up a little bit as well. And then uh, I mentioned calcium. So calcium is a really interesting one because we've reduced strong bones down to one nutrient and building strong bones. I can tell you my first degree I did before um, nutrition science was physiotherapy. And uh, I can tell you that building strong bones is it's a team game. It certainly doesn't come down to one nutrient. And in fact, we know that the countries that consume the most dairy 
have the highest incidence of fractures. Really? So uh, what that tells me, and sometimes people <clears throat> run away with that and say, see, dairy causes fractures. That's not the case. It's just that you can consume as much calcium as you want from dairy. And if you don't have the rest of your lifestyle in place, then you can still end up with weak bones, lower bone mineral density, osteopenia, osteoporosis, fractures, etc. Uh, so firstly, from a calcium point of view, it seems despite very different recommendations around the world, America, Canada, UK, Australia, it seems that you need to get at least 700 milligrams of calcium per day to reduce your risk of developing osteoporosis. And so my recommendation for folks on a, on a plant-based diet is you will be getting lots of calcium through dark leafy greens and beans and seeds like sesame seeds or tahini. But I think it's a wise idea when you, if you're substituting out dairy to choose a plant-based milk that's fortified mm. with calcium. Yeah. And so look for one that has about 120 milligrams of calcium per 100 mils. And so when you have a couple or so of that a day, you will be adding about 300, 350 milligrams of calcium into your diet. Along with all the foods you're eating, you'll be well above 700 milligrams per day. What else is important for strong bones? Well, from a nutrient point of view, we've already mentioned B12 and D3. So you've got those ticked off. And then protein. Protein is very important. And this is another one that I think uh, I want people to be more aware of. Actually, protein intake as you get over the age of 60 goes up a little bit. And that is because we know that a higher protein intake in the last few decades of life reduces uh, the risk of sarcopenia, so muscle wastage, mm -hmm. but it also reduces the risk of uh, osteopenia and osteoporosis. So my recommendation is to lean more into the legume food group and a little bit less into the whole grain leg, uh, food group as you're getting to sort of 60, 70 years of age for sure. Uh, and it would be remiss of me to not cover the importance of physical exercise. So if, if we're looking at building muscle, even if we're talking about athletes here, uh, structure reflects function. Exercise sits up here as the priority. You have to provide the stimulus for the body to respond to. Nutrition's far, far lower. It's still important, but the stimulus is the most important thing. You can eat as much protein as you want, and if you're not providing the stimulus, your body is not laying down more bone, your body is not building muscle. We know that. You know, go and just eat 300 grams of protein a day and don't do any exercise and you won't turn into a bodybuilder. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Uh, so, uh, really, you know, preventing osteopenia and osteoporosis means staying active. Mm. Lots of, of weight-bearing exercise, finding movement that you enjoy. You know, we don't have to call it exercise, just movement. You know, getting on your feet, doing steps, whatever it may be, that is going to, to keep reminding your body that you need strong bones. And then it will make use of all of this good nutrition that you're giving it um, to prevent your risk of developing these issues. Yeah, and it's also anti-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. Well, it's inflammatory for a moment, but then really inflammatory right. in the in the long haul. Um, and uh, and it also helps with mood 
and um, and mental health, which is a whole nother topic, mm-hmm. which maybe we save for another podcast. But um, you know, I've read quite a bit about also the microbiome and its relationship to um, neurotransmitters mm-hmm. like oxytocin or serotonin. A lot of people don't can't get their heads around the fact that eighty percent of their serotonin mm-hmm. is more or less made in their gut. And, and we know that uh, inflammation is a hallmark feature of depression, for example. We spoke yeah. about butyrate before, and we talked about the intestinal lining, but there's also a uh, brain-blood barrier. Right. And we know that the just as butyrate helps keep the epithelial cells that line the gut intact, it does the same at the brain barrier. And so when we're eating a diet that is low in fiber and we're not getting this butyrate production, we can also get breakdown of that barrier at the brain, which allows uh, inflammatory molecules to enter into the central nervous system that shouldn't be in there. Yeah. So I think we've done, and uh, well, you've done the hard work, all the hard lifting, um, and it, admirable job at creating the case for plants as it pertains to human health uh, across uh, disease prevention, across um, the microbiome, um, diabetes, etc. But of course, there is a non-anthropocentric component of adopting a plant-predominant or plant-focused diet. So I wonder if you could take a moment to talk about the relationship between what you eat and what's happening to the planet. Mm. I think everyone's well aware that we live on a a planet that is warming and uh, we're moving in a direction where the environment is not conducive to human health and our biology. There is a, a mismatch. And... Uh, there are a number of different drivers of this warming. And we know that industries and fossil fuels are a big player in that. And they probably account for around 75% of that. And there are different citations. Some people say it's more, some will say it's a little less. Um, but that seems to be a figure that sort of sits in the middle that that is generally accepted by most people. Uh, and agriculture accounts for 25, 26% of our total emissions, which is a significant chunk. And when we look at climate goals and we look at this goal of trying to stop the warming exceeding 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels, I want to make that clear because I think that's a little confusing, that concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you hear 1.5 degrees and it's like, what are we talking about? Today it was 70 degrees and <laughs> tomorrow it's 73. Like how can 1.5 degrees make such a big difference? Right. We're talking about the average temperature across the Earth's surface and we're talking about how that has changed since before the Industrial Revolution. And the reason that that has been sort of uh, that's the baseline and we're, we're trying to stay under 1.5 degrees is we understand through predictions what the world will look like if we exceed 1.5 degrees. And we'll see, you know, we're already seeing a lot of wildfires, but we'll see much more. We'll see uh, greater loss of biodiversity, greater collapse of life in our oceans, more uh, ocean dead zones. We'll see greater food insecurity. We already mm-hmm. have such enormous 
uh, inequities in our world and this will only result in more climate refugees, more areas of the world where there is water scarcity and, and food scarcity. And so uh, it's important that we are we understand what is contributing to this warming and then we understand how we can be a part of the solution. When we look at the at agriculture, there are some things that we need to work on. Uh, you know, if you if you go back and look at the way that agriculture has changed, in in many ways, it it has allowed us to achieve great things. And you know, I I'm not sure that you know two two hundred and fifty years ago when all of this industrialization was happening, that people had bad intent. I think the intent was good. It was about growing and it was about uh, improving the economy and the living standards and food security. You know, and we have to remember that just 100, 120 years ago, we were dealing with scurvy and beriberi and rickets. These are, these are diseases back then where they were driven by nutrient deficiencies, a lack of food. And so a lot of this industrialization of agriculture was to solve that problem, but we have inadvertently created another problem. And so where is our, our agricultural system perhaps going wrong? We, we use far too much land. We've turned planet Earth into a farm, and that has meant mass deforestation uh, it means mass inefficiencies in terms of how we're producing our calories we're emitting far too too much greenhouse gases which are responsible for trapping heat and, and warming the the planet and we're using too much water where we're tapping into the reservoirs at an alarming rate and uh, i think breaking this down is, is helpful for people to kind of imagine because, you know, you often hear about certain diets being better for the planet, um, but without the statistics, it can be hard to kind of make sense of that. I think one of the, the easiest ways to think about this is right now about 40 to 50% of all habitable land is used for agriculture. And of that we have 83% of that land is used for animal agriculture, right? So an enormous amount of the land we use for agriculture is for animal agriculture. And that's either for growing the crops fed to the animals or for the factory farm or for grazing animals. All of that only gives us 18% of our calories, mm. right? And the flip side of that is that about 17 to 20% of the land that we, we use is plant agriculture fed directly to humans and providing 80% of our calories. Wow. And yeah. so the reason that this is really important is that we there's a huge carbon opportunity cost here. We need to produce more calories from less food, from less land, and when we can do that, we can carve off a lot of the land we're currently using and we can regenerate, restore it to these natural biodiverse ecosystems that are much more resilient and also are drawing down carbon and are really our 
our ally in fighting climate change and, and helping cool the planet. Yeah. Thank you for that description. I mean, one of the graphics that I saw in your book that was um, so astounding was the amount of caloric input that mm. goes to into caloric output, let's say, around meat or red meat or beef. And I think that the number was something outrageous like there's about a there's a hundred calories of energy input to create like three, three calories mm -hmm. on the other side and that that's simply inefficient mm. and no and not sustainable i mean if you look at a world in 2050 where there's 10 billion people and that um and that the desire to consume meat maintains the level that it is or probably goes up as it as it mm -hmm. might as the developing world wants to uh, you know, indulge in more meat products, um, that just does not function as a, as a sustainable equation. Yeah, I think that's important to think about. These, these animals have a basal metabolic rate. They're burning yeah. energy just to, to be alive. And so uh, that is the inefficiency that you speak about when you feed calories into this system. A lot of those calories are lost and we don't get them out the other side. So you you spoke about cows, you feed 100 calories in, you get three out the other side. It gets a little more efficient as the size of the animal goes down because they have a lower basal, basal metabolic rate. So uh, a pig is a little bit more efficient and then you know, a chicken is a little bit more efficient again. Uh, but you know, over, overall, we need to be moving towards plant-based dietary patterns for the reason that that will allow us to emit less greenhouse ga gases through agriculture. It will mean we use less land. To give you an idea, to produce the same amount of protein from beef as tofu, beef uses 74 times more land. Okay? And that's, that's, that's being generous. It's actually greater if we look at other types of, of legumes. Also, Beef uses about 10 times more water than legumes per gram of protein to, to produce. And so for this reason, all the, the climate scientists' consensus position statements, be it from Project Drawdown or from the Eat Lancet, are really encouraging people to adopt very plant-rich diets. As in their Western world, the easiest, cheapest, most significant thing we can do on an individual level to mitigate climate change, to restore biodiversity and to preserve fresh water. So all of that is, is very consistent. And 2019, Eat Lancet, which was uh, produced by 37 different um, scientists and food systems experts who came together to say, how on earth are we going to feed 10 billion people within planetary boundaries? Hmm. How are we going to do this and restore biodiversity? How are we going to mitigate climate change? How are we going to preserve freshwater? And they produce what's called the planetary health diet. I write about this in the book. And that is a very plant predominant diet where 88% or more calories are coming from whole plants. And they specifically say... We need, we need humans to double their intake of fruits, vegetables, nuts, and legumes and half their intake of red meat and foods with added sugars. So 
all of this is to say that the best diet for your health also just happens to be the best diet for the planet. And this is really encouraging and important. Um, you know, our health is inextricably tied to the health of the planet. And now I'm, I'm really pleased to see, I mentioned the American Heart Association guidelines earlier. Traditionally, these guidelines have only commented on human health. Now they're all commenting on environmental health as well. They understand that our health is connected to the health of a planet. And there's no point having you know, guidelines that are encouraging people to eat in a way that is degrading the planet. So, uh, you know, I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, there are some optimistic signs. And of course, this makes no mention of animal sentience, mm -hmm. um, which is a whole another topic. Uh, but anyone that's read anything about it who has a compassionate bone in their body needs to also consider it. Um, and I think that one of the trickiest components of this right now is that there um, is that the, the giving up of a high saturated fat diet with a lot of meats feels very draconian for people because we have been conditioned in a particular way to associate a diet with T-bone steaks and chicken every night or at every meal with a certain kind of well-being. Mm -hmm. and, um, and affluence. And affluence. And there is um, a, a really a very strong indignation and resentment that people have when they feel shamed, when they feel like people are looking down their nose and saying, you can't eat that. Mm -hmm. And um, and I think this is really where the, you're such a like fantastic messenger because when I look at you, I don't feel like you're giving up anything in life. You know, you're a specimen of a physical human being, uh, obviously, your mind is incredibly cogent as well, but you. But I think you are a perfect case study, uh, and of course we know that case studies aren't always the most reliable thing. <laughs> um, but for this idea that adopting a plant-focused or plant-based diet isn't tantamount with sacrifice, mm -hmm. it's actually equivalent or or tantamount with thriving and with well-being. And it's almost like we need to flip the script on that one. Yeah. And, you know, to your to your sort of earlier point around, I think meat is also associated with masculinity, hmm. with, with affluence. And so we're challenging a lot of those kind of uh, societal norms in a way. Uh, but I think it's actually becoming, quickly it's becoming quite masculine to care about your health and it's becoming cool to care about the health of the planet and so we we're seeing you know a real paradigm shift and uh, I'm, I'm seeing people that i i thought i would never see make some of these changes and one of the the kind of i think most uh remarkable things for me personally about this is not just proving to myself that you know I knew 
that as I was making changes to my diet that I was going to be reducing my risk of chronic diseases. But I, I needed some convincing that I could still pursue my athletic endeavors. And uh, over time, I was able to really prove that to myself. And, and on, the, on the aspect of joy and sacrifice that you kind of alluded to, it became very quickly apparent to me that I was gaining far more than I was giving up and I was introduced to all of these delicious foods that were adding so much joy to my life. Uh, but perhaps the most remarkable thing for me was the challenging of my belief system and my values and examining my actions. And I think all of us, we have this internal dialogue and I have by no means mastered this and and certainly not perfect but these changes in diet opened me up to this idea of getting quiet thinking about what are my beliefs and values where are my actions at are these things congruent and how can i narrow the gap between the beliefs and values and the actions and it it really for me was about setting up a bit of a template, which then I could then use and go and apply to other areas in, in my lifestyle outside of, of diet. And, and so usually when I'm talking to people about making these changes, I do like to emphasize that's one of these benefits that you can't see. You can only really feel it. Yeah, it's so true. And this is, speaks to, a, I suppose, more of a spiritual journey where you know the full examined life and a life that is rich with meaning is one where your works and actions are best aligned with your highest principles mm -hmm. and through the adoption of different kinds of behaviors in our life in our lives we can find that alignment and that really leads to a, a really full life, um, a life that has a lot of purpose and a lot of meaning. And there are knock-on effects to that, as you pointed out, where, you know, for, for me, I've been plant-based now for about two and a half, three months. So I'm early on my journey. I've always ate generally well, mm -hmm. but now really actually aligning my intentions with my behavior. And I find that it actually works the other way around too, that your behavior actually also becomes your thoughts. And, and this is um, where it gets really, really dynamic. Um, and, uh, and, um, and it's, yeah, as I, as I kind of initially remarked, I do think that making these kind of decisions in your life is, is about your own spirituality. It's about your connection to something greater than yourself. Definitely. And, and when you start to think about these changes on this level, uh, this is where I think a plant-based diet has a significant advantage over other diets because it ticks all of these boxes. Hmm. It's not just your health. It's the health of the planet. It's better for all of these sentient beings. And so it does create a very rich, deep meaning, uh, you know, underpinning it and, uh, you know, I think for people listening, if 
this is something that they're considering but they don't know where to start because often this can be quite uh, overwhelming. I did not land at a plant-based, plant-exclusive diet overnight. It took me some time to get there and it was small incremental steps, building confidence, uh, reading more, learning more. And so uh, while you may have some end goal in mind, I think remove some of that judgment from yourself and just realize that you don't have to make all of these changes overnight. Just start start with something. Hopefully, you know, it could be after this listening to this. Yeah. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, but just start. And uh, once you start, you've got the wheels in motion and you can just slowly keep refining, keep tweaking and find that level of commitment that, that you're looking for. All right. Simon Hill, the proof is in the plants. I, uh, it's been just a joy being with you and, and meeting you in person for the first time. And I, I feel like you've been in my life because you've been in my ear, <laughs> uh, quite literally. Um, but I just encourage everyone to, to get this book, um, or to get it on audible, which is the way I enjoyed it. Um, because it comes with this accompanying PDF, which is just one of the most thorough, rigorous documents, uh, that I've ever experienced that covers all of the topics that we've talked uh, about in this conversation and, and a lot more. And of course you have, a. Uh, uh, your podcast. Uh, are you able to keep that up while you're here in LA? Uh, yeah, I, I fortunately had a bit of a backlog of, of episodes. Good so, for you. Uh, <laughs> That's hard. Yeah. The Plant Proof Podcast. Uh, we'd love to have people over there if they want to listen to me a little more and and, and my guests. Uh, and, you know, I'm always pretty active on social. So people can find me at plant underscore proof and happy to answer questions. All right. Thank you, Simon. To be Thank continued. You. Thank you for having me. It's uh, It's been a pleasure and uh, feel honored to be invited to commune. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're clothed and we're not on drugs. <laughs> All right. Let's do it again. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Simon Hill. To keep abreast of Simon's work and whereabouts, check out plantproof.com and pick up a copy of his new book, The Proof is in the Plants. Now, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort is put into the creation of the show. We really do our best to also keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where the first 15 minutes are ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, I'm here. Feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fritz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>